Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, every time I preach, I feel like there's there's a new experience for me to have. I think this is my first, last time was my first time to preach on uh, a Zoom call. This time, I think it's my first time to preach on a Zoom call in the round. You can see I've got a, an, a all the some listeners behind me here, so um, yeah, this will be this will be fun. Uh, chiming in from uh, from behind me uh, today. Uh, it's good to see you all. You did a great job. <laughs> Sorry, they were they were yapping at me. Uh, I want to start with a part of the text that John just read. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I know that uh, a number of you have been reading Glennon Doyle's new book, Untamed. Uh, all, all you dudes, right? Uh, Julie, Julie has followed Glennon Doyle for the last 10 or 11 years, I guess, since she started her, her Christian mom blog, Momastery. And so most of my exposure to her work has been through late night conversations with Julie while we're watching sitcoms and she kind of shares the latest Glennon Doyle news or thoughts or reflections that were interesting to her. And Glennon has gone on to write some best-selling books, and Untamed is the latest one. Uh, I tuned in more closely because uh, Dak Shepard had her on his podcast, and that, that's one of my cultural inputs is his podcast, Armchair Expert. Uh, they talked about her book, Untamed, and its framing metaphor, uh, Setting Free the Caged Cheetah which is women specifically or humans in general. Uh, they talked about resisting patriarchy, which I dig. Um, and Doyle shared some of her story of her divorce with her husband and marrying professional soccer player, Abby Wambach. Um, all of those talking points were interesting to me and they merit way more discussion than I could engage in in this space. But what caught my attention was the turn to religion in their conversation. Um, if you didn't know, religion is an area of interest for me. And so, you know, my, my ears perked up a little bit. Um, Dax, the host of the podcast, isn't particularly religious, though he's, uh, he's very tuned in. He's very self-aware. Uh, he's very thoughtful. Uh, and he was curious about how Glennon was making sense of religion lately and how she saw herself in it, uh, knowing her history as a Christian mom blogger and some of the tensions that were created by her story of divorce and uh, marrying a woman in particular. Um, and Glennon's response is what most caught my attention. She said, in no way do I associate God with church. They are two different things. I'm curious, um, I'll ask a question for those of you who know um, Glennon's body of work better than I do. Um, I, I feel like there's some context behind a statement like that. Uh, and I'm curious, what do you make of that statement? Those of you who know 
Glennon's work. What experience uh, do you sense is informing that response? Um, and I've, I've asked Julie, my personal resident Glennon expert, to chime in um, as well. And after we talk a little bit about what Glennon's saying um, here, I, I'm going to ask another question that kind of broadens it out. So don't feel like you're left out too much if you have no idea who Glennon Doyle is. Julie, do you want to start or do you want to let other people talk? Okay. She says let other people talk. So leave a chat and I'll, I'll holler at you. Leave a chat note. What do you, what do you make of her statement? What experiences do you feel like inform when she says, uh, in no way do I associate God and church? They're two different things. Jen Reese, tell us about it. Uh, so, I feel like um, separating God and church uh, takes a lot of work and um, that it takes a lot of time. And um, I, I feel like she's had quite a bit of time now to process, you know, her, her old self because I, I, I believe that she's had to untie them if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm yeah. correct in that. Um, and, uh, but just noting that, you know, that, you know, her and others have been able to do that. Um, and it feels hopeful for me because I feel like the church can be a pretty awful representation of God. So it's hopeful <laughs> that they're not the same. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm hearing you say at one point she did kind of identify the two God and church uh, being the same. And, and part of that untangling is reckoning with the horrible things the church does and wanting to differentiate that from who God is. Is that, yeah. am I hearing you right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. Any other thoughts to add to that? Probably not. <laughs> just yell. I, I think it's a statement just largely represented on her experience in the church. Um, yeah, should they keep hearing I can't. Gosh, y'all. <laughs> okay, I feel like it's largely just representative of her experience with with God and the church, and um, I think she would associate the church as a group of imperfect people who tried to hand her a definitive. Um, an exhaustive idea of who God was and that how those people interpreted it. Um, they had figured it out and that was kind of the end all be all. And then when her life experience didn't match up with who God was and what the church was handing her, um, that, that sort of broke them into a dichotomy for her. Gotcha. So her experience of church, the church kind of postured itself as the the arbiter of all truth, the the be all end all, mm-hmm. 
And that started to break a little bit when she saw some disconnects. Yes, and I and I think she I've, I've heard her say how sad it makes her that what the greater population, the image or representation they have of Jesus has come from how the greater church has represented itself in politics and in public. Hmm. Thank you, Julie. Um, let, let me broaden the question a little bit. For those of you who don't know Glennon, um, or who do, um, to what extent does this sentiment reflect the feelings of your friends or your neighbors and why? Uh, I don't, I don't associate God and church at all. They're two separate things. That idea. To what, to what idea, do you, to what extent do you hear that in your neighbors or your friends? And, and why? Why are they saying that? Sarah Walker, then Kara. Yeah, um, I mean, what I think about, I haven't read Glennon's stuff, but what I think about when I hear her say that is uh, rings true for me. It's like the things, it, it sounds like the things that she's been through in her life, um, divorce, marrying a woman, maybe thinking different things about God or about the church, like the church pushes you out and if you like if you're doing something different then the church pushes you out and if you tie the church and God together then that's essentially like God rejecting you and pushing you away and so you have to untie them for your own um, sanity or your own ability to feel loved by God because if you don't (laughs) you um, you lose sight of the fact that God loves you Um, And I think that that's definitely what I've heard from our other friends or like I've said this before that Ryan and I, you know, didn't go to church for, I guess, a period of five years of just kind of purposely abstaining from church. Um, And I was able to find God in that. I mean, God is definitely there. Um, but there's a lot of grief and I, we met people along that journey who had also were abstaining from church and we have a very good friend and he said, you know, I want to be part of church, but he's gay and the church in Ireland would not, um, I mean, they very, very openly (laughs) would not let him be part of that. And I mean, that's just all kinds of grief for people. And so if you, if you want to hold on to God, you have to uncouple from the church if the church rejects you. basically. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that perspective, Sarah. Um, Kara, what do you think? And then we'll, we'll keep moving. Uh, Yeah. I'm also not familiar with uh, the writings, but I just, I think about immediately my mind goes to my friends in Spain. Uh, I haven't, I haven't lived there in a long time. It's been <laughs> over a decade, but I've maintained some friendships with, with people there that I went to school with and um, recently saw one of them uh, a little less than a year ago. And um, there, the mentality of it, and it's, as you all know, Catholicism is like the primary religion there, but it's um it's really now more with the with our generation it's um the par- their parents are the catholics and 
um, the mentality is, um, you know, a postmodern kind of like whatever, if that's what they think and that's comforting to them, that's good. And so, you know, I, one of my, my friends that we saw last year said, yeah, I go with my mom to mass, you know, once a month or something because that's meaningful to her. And there, there's no, it's only about, um, the tradition and the ritual rather than, I mean, and, and it's, it's a, you know, just completely separate because they're really in, in most of my friends' minds, uh, there's, there really is no God to put in church or out of church anyway. And I was also remembering if, um, Charles baptized my, my ex-boyfriend many, many years ago in storyline, Sergio, and he was from Spain. And I remember giving him a beginner's Bible because he grew up Catholic, but he had never heard of Jesus before. And, um, and he like read these stories and said, I just never, I remember being like so confused by it because I just, it hadn't really occurred to me like that you, there is a concept of an institution that's a church, but, but the whole concept of who God is, is completely outside of it. So that's where my mind went. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I see Gordon's name on here. I'd love to hear from you, Gordon. Oh, yeah. I'll keep it quick since you're trying to move forward. But no kind of what I hear in that is like, and I have no idea of the context or anything, but maybe, um, you know, church is kind of where we practice our faith and when we all meet up and uh, we do all the things we do together. Um, but, you know, someone can go to church really consistently their entire life, but not really see God in their everyday life or be doing, you know, what may be considered God's will uh, or practicing the things in their daily life. And so I think that sort of like in your daily life is where you encounter God and you may have like a deep relationship. And I think there's a big connection to that through church, but maybe she was referring to, um, it being two separate things in that sense. Yeah. Right on. Thank you, Gordon. Uh, Glennon's comment and, and the extent to which it is echoed by our friends and our neighbors and even ourselves raises the question, um, what is the relationship between God and the church? And particularly what's this relationship in a time of crisis like we're facing with COVID-19, um, especially when it's, when it's juxtaposed with Peter's comment in the second chapter of his letter that we read at the beginning. But you, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, Peter's language here summons the history of Israel. After Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage, they traveled to Mount Sinai, and Moses and Israel make this covenant with uh, God to kind of seal their special relationship. And in Exodus 19, God says to Moses something that sounds very familiar to the text we've just been reading. 
Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests and holy nation. Uh, God is speaking in this narrative in terms that any Israelite or ancient Near Eastern person could understand. Um, In fact, one of the tribes of Israel, the Levites, had priesthood as their special vocation. Uh, This tribe didn't have any land because God was supposed to be their inheritance. They lived to serve at the tabernacle or the temple where the presence of God dwelled, and they helped Israel connect to God. They were set apart or holy to the extent that they had this special vocation of facilitation. Um, The Levites didn't own or control God. Uh, Israel doesn't experience God only through the Levites. The prophets, Naomi and Ruth, David, Solomon, many others, all have experiences of God that the Levites didn't facilitate. And yet this Levite vocation remains to help facilitate connection to God. Uh, Fun fact, uh, did you know that Cohen is the Hebrew word for priest? So uh, who knew that Andy Cohen was actually a priest in the tribe of Levi to the real housewives? I mean, who knew? You're welcome. Uh, So for Israel to be a kingdom of priests meant that Israel was to the world what the tribe of Levi was to Israel, someone who's set apart to help facilitate people's connection to God. They aren't God. They don't own God. They aren't the one, the only ones who belong to God. Uh, After all, God said the whole earth is mine, but they help connect the world to God. Their way of life, their devotion is a witness to the goodness of God. Um, This is the reference that Peter makes when he writes his letter to marginalized Christian communities all over Asia Minor. They were regarded as strange, weird, peculiar, worthy of ridicule because of their allegiance to Jesus. They were openly mocked and ridiculed. Um, Imagine what they must have felt to hear that they were royal to hear that they were a priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, to hear that they were in good company with Jesus in their rejection and suffering because Jesus, the Lord of creation, was also rejected and suffered. Jesus is this stone that the builders reject who ironically ends up becoming the foundation stone, the stone that all other stones in the building are set in reference to. These marginalized Christian communities were valuable to God, even though they were being rejected by their neighbors. What a boost of strength that must have been for them. Uh, maybe you've heard the phrase priesthood of all believers. Uh, it comes right out of First Peter 2, 9. Martin Luther made it really popular in the Reformation about 500 years ago when he used this concept to criticize the Catholic Church and the way that priests were elevated to this special class above all the other Christians, you know, who we would call the laity. Um, In the last century, it's been commonly used to champion uh, every member ministry, right? Uh, As we would say, everybody gets to play. 
Um, everybody can have a ministry or serve in the church. Uh, but the imagination has specific uh, reference to the Christian community, kind of by and for the Christian community. But I'm struck as I consider this connection to priesthood in Israel, what has often been missed. And that is that the church is called to be a priesthood to its neighbors, the way Israel was a priesthood to the world, to facilitate and help connect to God. We as the church, we have to reckon with the perspectives of the Glennon Doyles of the world, whose disassociation with God uh, from church is a legitimate and understandable response, um, not only to a lot of hurt and crap dealt out by the church to its members and to its neighbors, but also to this unhealthy over-identification of church with God, church equaling God. Um, we have to own and confess ways that the church has objectified others in the name of mission and claimed a position of privilege and power that's not consistent with the humble vocation of priesthood. We have to admit, too, that we in Storyline aren't marginalized and persecuted the way those marginal Christian, Christian communities in Asia Minor were. But when the dust settles, after all of these reckonings, our priestly vocation to our neighbors remains. In fact, I believe part of our priestly vocation is reckoning with all of those reckonings, uh, cleaning house, owning our garbage, humbling ourselves. We have this priestly vocation, not because there's something inherently more special about us than our neighbors, not because God isn't the creator of the whole world, not because we're the only ones made in God's image, but simply and only because we have given our allegiance to the person and life of Jesus, who is the high priest to the whole world. So if that's true, um, if it's true that our priestly vocation remains, in what ways is the church a community of priests to, it, to its neighbors in our day? Uh, what, what does it mean? For us, what's our calling to be a priestly uh, presence in our world? What, what do you imagine that looks like? What you got, Val? Um... For me, I think it means that the church needs to, like, I think it needs to show Jesus love and to point to Jesus. And I get nervous with that language sometimes because I like um, reacting against like um, being grown up and told that I need to share Jesus with everyone and feeling like that meant that I literally just needed to say like, do you know Jesus? This is who Jesus is. And I... I think that, um, not that I think that's bad in and of itself, but I think that there are ways that the church can show Jesus love and point to Jesus without having to actually say those words. Like, I think of like, um, the church being a place of refuge, the church being, um, someone that like helps their neighbors, that loves their neighbors, and it's not a transactional thing, but it's just because that's what Jesus would do, whether, you know, that's, um, 
like helping people, feeding the hungry, being involved in working for justice. And I think, at least for me, within the tradition that I grew up, that wasn't something that the church always did in that way. Um, and um, I don't know. To me, it's it's sad to think of the church not being something that points it to Jesus, but being something that people need to leave in order to find God. And yeah. so we need to think about, like, what what are we doing that's causing people to not see God in us and what can we change? Yeah. Thank you, Val. Uh, Ted, what about you? Yeah. This similar to what Val was saying. Um, when you think, uh, when I think about like what the, the role of a priest is, was in the, in the Israelite religion, or even even in like the the Christian traditions that have a priesthood, like they 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 mediate between people and between God, and so there is this element of of reaching out to other people and doing that, but there's also this element of like administering the sacraments on behalf of of others. Mm-hmm. Um, the the priests in in Israel would offer the sacrifices. Um, they would go into the Holy of Holies. They would offer the prayers. They would do the work to connect people on behalf of the people of God or on behalf of all people. And so I think about that um, in terms of this, like especially in the context of people that are not part of the community, people that um, that are having to go out of the community to try to find God or don't have a connection to God, that we could look for ways to be that connection to God that don't look like religion and that we could pray on their behalf. We could offer sacrifice on their behalf. We could, we could be there again, very similar to what Val was saying, practically speaking, we can be there to listen. We can be there to go out and serve. We can be there to do things um, without the pressure of trying to make everybody else into a priest. Um, We could just try to, be that soft connection to God for them. Um, and I don't know if I'm making a ton of sense or not, but that's but just, just kind of that idea is this intermediary spot. Yeah. I, I really like the on behalf of line of thought that mm-hmm. that's really fascinating to me. And I also appreciate too, the, um, and I heard this in Val's comments, uh, releasing the, some desired goal or outcome to force everybody to become a priest. Right. Um, just, just serving in our vocation and releasing the outcomes. Uh, yeah. Um, John Oliver, what about you? I've been thinking a lot lately about chaplains, you know, as it it, it relates to this also. There's chaplains in hospitals, chaplains in prisons, chaplains in the military, and Daryl's a chaplain with the police department. So chaplain is someone that's trained and available to help somebody if they want it right there. So if a family is going through crisis, individuals going through crisis, they're there. They're available at no charge. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a marvelous way to to bring light and salt and love and counsel and listening ear and non-judgmentalness in a setting where somebody is in in the deep weeds. And doesn't know who to turn to. Haven't got family. Haven't got, it's like chaplain is a, you know, if I, if, 
right now, I think if, if I could redo my life, I would become a chaplain. That just seems like a marvelous way to participate in lives and have a side deal that's discipleship. So chaplains are good for crisis, but I need to also have disciples on the side. That's just a neat way to be a Christian. Yeah, that's good, John. I, I love the the thought of just being available. It reminds me of people I've known who have just set up a table in the middle of a public area and said, I'm open for conversation if you need a listening ear. <laughs> that's that's a kind of a priestly role. That's a sacred thing. Yeah. Daryl, what about you? I guess for me, and this has been for a long time in my an important text for me is uh, Philippians chapter two. And I, I see this whole thing. And this goes back to associating the church with God in many ways. Um, we are called to have the mind and to demonstrate the mind of Christ. The problem is, is when we imperfectly, which we will always do imperfectly represent that. But this attitude that somehow and we, and we look at the entire text. We talk about gospel. It's Jesus. All the way from life, you know, ministry, death, resurrection. That's, that whole thing is gospel. And what does Jesus do? He empties himself. He, he completely empties himself, gives up all rights to love on people and to be, to bring a redemptive presence to them. And you can apply it to chaplaincy. You can apply it to, to everything else that everyone else has already brought up uh, in, in this conversation so far. It's, it is a matter of saying no to me and my needs and my wants. And I talk about all of chapter two, okay, in Philippians, uh, that I consider others' needs ahead of my own needs. Um, and I don't mean in some sort of psychologically unhealthy way, but we put others' needs and others' good ahead of our own, emptying ourselves, being willing to take the lower position, not being concerned about being exalted, not being concerned about getting the last word in, not being concerned about whether or not we're recognized for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's where, that's the position the church should have always had that, unfortunately, we rarely have. Um, and it's because, as one dear friend of mine who is, a, who is a just retired Episcopalian priest said, you know, the church is the most evil thing in the world. It's also the most holy thing because it's made up of people mm-hmm. and you've got the entire gamut there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Daryl. You're right. Um, that Philippians passage is such a great picture of uh, the posture of the priestly vocation, not in, not in power or in presumption, but in humility and in self-emptying. That's really good. Uh, Sarah Walker, you want to offer a last comment? The final word. Sure. I'll offer the final word. Um, I actually learned this from people who aren't Christians at all, but then uh, that's, that's the way it goes, right? God's everywhere. <laughs> um so for me, it's kind of like I, I see, you know, the way that we bring our peace with us or the way that we are uh, helping other people connect to God. The way that I do that is like by listening to them and then just mirroring back to them anything that I hear them say 
that sounds like um, a connection to God or that sounds like an expression of God, even if they don't believe in God. So like to someone who's a Christian, I might say like, I really see God working in, in you in this way. I really see God's expression of creativity in the way that you like to sing or you like to talk. And then to someone who's not a Christian, I might say like, I really love the way that you connect with your friends and how it's important to you to have community. And I love the way that you'll organize things, or I love the way that you check in on people, or I love the way that you dye your hair 20 million colors and you have, I mean, so I don't know. I feel like oftentimes we're kind of pressured to have a message that we're taking to people, like that they need a message that they don't already have. But I think sometimes God's presence and the priesthood with them is just affirming them and like being the love of God to them verbally. Um, because that's not something that I think happens in our culture, in the church or out of the church. But I think that that's something that's very godly. Mm-hmm. So that's good. I love that um, affirming how we see God um, in our neighbors is a part of that priestly vocation. Uh, Peter says that this priestly role is expressed in a couple of ways in this text that we're looking at. Number one, in the church's worship, uh, you know, in verse nine, it talks about how the church declares the praises of God. Um, and then also as the church uh, lives out its way of life. I mean, th- this is reflecting what all of you have said. Uh, in verse 5, Peter talks about the church offering up these spiritual sacrifices. Uh, Eugene Peterson's message says, um, the sacrifices of Christ-approved lives. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's not merely a, a religious ritual. It is, it's, uh, giving ourselves. Our, li- our way of life is a witness to the goodness of God. And it's significant to me that all of this is funded by by our um, acknowledgement of how God has rescued us, blessed us, brought us from darkness into light. It, it's funded in this connection to God, and it's assumed that we have this connection to God ourselves. Um, I'll tell you where I see this priestly vocation in our midst. Uh, I see it in Kira Christensen. And the Roadstead Project, I don't know if you've seen her live Facebook feeds where she's inviting whoever's interested to connect to God in the midst of their quarantined state. Uh, I see it when Sarah Walker and the community around her host these virtual brunches and invites uh, not only Storyline participants, but also our neighbors and our friends into that space. She's facilitating uh, a means of grace. Ted was talking about a sacrament. The sacrament of hospitality is a means of grace to our neighbors in that setting. Uh, I see it in Ben Reese and his colleagues as they encourage healthcare workers in self-care, self-care practices to see God and to see God's work in their care for those who are sick and dying. Uh, I see it in Miles and his work community as they're advocating for the well-being of a lot of employees whose jobs are very fragile right now. Uh, I see it in Project Red and Kara and Oscar and the spiritual community around them as they, they feed and serve hungry families in El Salvador right now. I could go on. Uh, the church can certainly see God through its neighbors, and we do and we must. It's also true that our neighbors can see God through the church. And I know it's true because I see God in you.
Um, what a gift to be able to participate in this sacred vocation. Uh, God is great, and God sees all of you, and he thinks you're pretty great too.